0: everybody and uh, welcome to this episode of the super image Ltd podcast uh, today we are talking with uh, someone really we're really excited to talk to uh, David Cluck and I think I'd just like him to introduce himself uh, tell our listeners and our viewers um, a little bit about what you do and uh, what your what your career looks like oh wow okay um, uh, on the spot here so yeah I'm a
1: I'm a Southern California native um, uh, currently residing in Bangkok. I've been here, uh, been lived in Thailand off and on since 2008, uh, but I've been here full-time for about six years. Um, I, when I was quite young, I was always fascinated with uh, filmmaking and, and was interested in uh, in making movies. I uh, never really had an access way in, but uh, I think a, an early sort of manifestation of a career as a musician, as a rock and roll musician, um, and then uh a few serendipitous events sort of led me into working for a cable television company in uh, Southern California, originally in Pomona. And then I moved to a, an office in Covina, which is where I met your father, and, um, <clears throat> and uh, started doing production for local local access production, really, really super, you know, um, very small stuff uh, with very limited resources. But it, it, I think it was a great training ground because it, it really helped me develop my resourcefulness. And uh, and then it was in about 19. I left that job in mid 1989, and then ended up in 1990 getting a job for a commercial production company in Hollywood through a director I'd met uh, named Oscar Bassinson, who had a company called Bassinson Productions. We did uh, mostly TV commercials, but my first job there was uh, as a co-producer on a short film that he was doing because he was trying to expand his. Uh, director's reel and not do, he was mostly known for as a food director, but he wanted to do more comedy and, uh, and, and, you know, real people kind of directing longer form stuff. So that was where I met him and, uh, that turned into a full-time job there. And then I relocated from Covina out to, uh, to Hollywood. And, um, uh, then I spent a year there and then went freelance and I've basically been freelance, primarily freelance freelance since 1991 so coming up coming up on 30 years and uh uh kind of kind of bounced back and forth between you know originally when I got in the business I think like everybody I really focused on I thought I wanted to be a director <clears throat> and um and I thought an easy way to do that would would be to start working as a first assistant director and it is a good training ground there's a few famous uh directors that started out as first ADs Costa Gavras being one of them and uh Few others that don't really come to mind right now, but uh, um, uh, so. I, but I ended up not really pursuing a directing path. I stayed on the production side and producing, uh, but enjoyed developing projects. So as later in my career, my I started working on a little more interesting and, and higher profile uh, films as a first AD. That you know, that got me got it, gave me a chance to sort of also pursue creatively uh, projects that I developed myself. And that's kind of where I'm at right now as I I kind of bounce back and forth between the two. And, um, that's a little bit about me. Oh, I just
0: lost your audio there. I'm muted. Yeah. (laughs) It's a great (laughs) great starting point. Um, and I think at this point uh, I'd actually like to take it like way back and to say, well, what was your first experience, uh, with film, just, just in your life as a medium, what, what, got your attention first about it? Like, how old were you? Mm -hmm. And what was what was the film?
1: Well, I think I three films that for some reason always stick in my mind. Um, uh, when I was quite young, one, uh, and those three films are, 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 uh, Chinatown, Paper Moon, and Tommy. Um, I, uh, I remember, uh, my grandmother, on my mother's side, who I was very close to, I remember um, seeing *Paper Moon* when I was quite young, and I found it a fascinating story. And, and my grandmother was kind of explaining certain aspects of the storyline to me. What you know, with the kind of the these this guy and his young daughter on the grift, you know, during the Depression and trying to just you know trying to try to make some money, and they're scamming people, and and just just the interpersonal dynamic. That, that was with them, and I remember that. And then, um, so I always liked that film. It's still one of my one of my all-time favorites uh, by Peter Bogdanovich. And uh, then Chinatown, which is arguably probably my favorite film ever made. Um, and I found it fascinating as being a, like 10 years, 10, 11 years old when it came out, and I was like, this is not set in China. It looks like it's set in Los Angeles. <laughs> so somebody explained, you know, you know then as you know as i learn as i get older and i've since read lots of books on it and i've developed projects that that were reminiscent of that you know just the concept of 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 the metaphor of chinatown of of the 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 you know the the sense of it's you know what it represents is lawlessness it represents it's a sort of a wild west a self-governance kind of uh thing and um uh so and, and i don't know the strange thing is and i've not really explored this but the idea of you know chinatown uh being you know a, a city within a city a, a a little a little bubble within a city frankly and the, sort of the fascination with it and, and then for me many years later to be in my late 40s and moving to asia so um and i think one of the attractions for me living in asia frankly is is that it is a bit uncon- unconventional I wouldn't say it's lawless. It's not dangerous here at all. It's the safest, one of the safest cities I've ever been in. But but there is a sense of um, you can sort of do what you want if you leave people alone, they leave you alone. And uh, and uh, but they're very engaged. You know, the Thai people are like the nicest people in the world, so that's that's really cool. Um, but no, anyway, so I don't know if there's really a correlation there. But Chinatown for me was is always I think it's it's you know it's near the perfect movie. It's uh, I, I just read a great book uh, called The Big Goodbye um which is about the making of chinatown I highly recommend hey, that yeah. to filmmaker and uh especially the way it delves into uh you really four character four personalities you know robert town roman polanski robert evans and, and jack nicholson who were you know obviously the, the key players in that whole thing um but it's also as an angelino for growing up in southern california and spending you know right after high school i grew up in orange county uh, I went to San Clemente High School, and right after high school, I moved to L.A. It was in the San Gabriel Valley. and um, But being in and around L.A. my whole life, and Southern California, certainly, um, it's fascinating. You know, L.A. is a fascinating place, and this took a, a look at L.A. in its sort of formative years, which I, I, I still think is fascinating. If you even go back to Raymond Chandler, you go back to any of these kinds of these guys that just, you know, wrote great stuff about L.A. and made great movies about L.A., Chinatown epitomizes that for me, and I and I like the I like the concept of the true POV story, where no, nothing is seen that the that, that the lead character doesn't see. So the audience, you never cut away to anything that Jake Gittes doesn't see. Um, that's an interesting challenge, uh, uh, and an interesting storytelling technique, which I I, I find fascinating. Um, so and then Tom, the the third film that I I remember succinctly growing up uh, was Tommy. Um, and, you know, based on the rock opera by the band, The Who, the British band, The Who. And um, it was just such a visual, uh, stunningly visual piece that I just remember being kind of blown away. One scene in particular was w- where, you know, this idea of, of of this TV sort of manifesting in life where Anne Margaret is like watching TV and then, all these, she's all sees all these images, and then her life sort of explodes into what was going on to the TV as the front of the old tube TV opens. And she had seen a commercial about it, beans and this, you know, thousands of gallons of beans come pouring out of the TV, and she's writhing around on the floor. And as a young man, that was sort of interesting, and Margaret back then. And, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I just remember that being an incredibly visual piece, and I also. Uh, kind of that came out about the time I was starting to learn to play the drums and being into music. So, and that was a a film about music. That's, you know, great, really a great musical in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a rock opera and, uh, and it was you know, so groundbreaking, so incredibly groundbreaking uh, for its time. And, uh, uh, you know, it cast of, cast of characters and that, you know, from Tina Turner to Jack Nicholson again, to, you know, to, to the, to the members of the who to Eric Clapton to Elton John, all, you know, in these just incredibly visual, stunningly visual pieces and, uh, and a fascinating story. So oh. that was, I think those are my inspirations. I mean, very young inspirations, yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and, and I think as, as I evolved, sort of my tastes evolved <clears throat> as I learned more, I, uh, I, I, I gained a gain more appreciation. I gained a, you know, better understanding of of films and what what uh, what they meant to me. And uh, it was it really that was that's as much the process of maturing as anything, um, I think. And uh, as our changes and our sophistication level, our tastes change as time goes on.
0: One thing that I kind of want to ask, and and I always find is interesting to talk about, is what is one like. Uh, preconceived notion or myth or whatever that got busted the second you started working on sets, like like film sets. What what's something that you thought was going to go one way and it just you you learned it's the complete opposite.
1: Well, one not to sound nasty is that 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 everybody knows what they're doing. Uh, so that you know, um, that's 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 sort of the cynical side of it. Mm-hmm. The other side of it is. Um, for me, one of the, one of the big telling things was like, once I sort of, well, I always thought I wanted to be a director, you know, I, I think everybody wants to be a director. Right. Right. You know, yep. but then when you actually learn the job, that's like, well, wait a minute. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to deal with these personalities. I got to deal with this. Oh God. So that was also a big awakening for me is, is when I started, sort of started getting, getting what uh, the job was of, of, of a director. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there was there's so many to be quite honest with you. There's just so many different aspects of the industry, and that until you're sort of around it, it's hard, it's hard it's hard to imagine. You can't really you know you try to explain to somebody, Well, either it's a either interpersonal dynamics working with people, working with sometimes can be very incredibly difficult people. Uh, the absolute pleasure it is when you work with with people that are incredibly professional and nice and and really have. Uh, have it together um, uh, from behind and in front of the camera. Um, So I um, and I but I, I have to admit that I think when I got into that side of the business, I was so enthusiastic and so such a so willing to be a sponge and so willing to do whatever it took, work for free or just, you know, put in the hours and uh that i just it it didn't really bother me at the time i think i got i certainly got more cynical as i got older in terms of more cynical maybe just less patient um less a little bit less tolerant uh but but and and not from a standpoint of wanting only wanting to work on big shows or stuff the last couple of projects i've done um the last project i produced was one of the lowest budget things i've ever done and it's one of the most one of the things i'm most proud of and um and uh you know so it, it it it's not necessarily about budgets and resources and working with big stars but but it, it's just working with somebody that whose talent i respected and uh um and you know fun to collaborate with on occasion fun he's not always the funnest guy to collaborate with but you know we'll get into that later
0: <laughs> well and i think that's part of the whole thing is that you know uh, finding that group, that groove you get in with certain people you work with, that's the most important part. And uh, one thing I think I'd like to ask that m- maybe a lot of the listeners don't know about, uh, the average person might not know about is what does a first direct, first assistant director do?
1: Yeah, that's that a very good question. Um, the, you know, you're sort of, I always, you know, liken it to positive. You're sort of like the chief of staff, right? So you're, you um, there, there's a lot of mechanics to the job, which I'll get into. But first of all, I mean, you're, you're sort of the you're the first officer. You're the chief of staff. Um, a lot of t- and and my function as a first AD on different films is entirely dependent on the director. So um, people ask me some, sometimes, I say, what's your style as a first AD? I say, well, it depends on the director. I, I'm not going to be the one. You know, some shows some movies I come on and the director is very low key basically wants to kind of whisper to me in the DP. It's like, here's a shot. I would like, I want to get a dolly shot here, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And so then it's like up to me. Okay, guys, here's what we're doing. Laying dolly track here. Let's bring the actors in. Let's rehearse. Let's do this. Other times I work with directors who are very much like that. Bring me this, bring me that, blah, 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 blah. And then I just, I sit back and I, you know, talk in the walkie and I get things brought to him and get things done. And I, and I do that. And I, so, so my style is purely dependent on, where the director falls in terms of, of his style frankly so um it's uh so it's that is is a big part of it personality interpersonal dynamics that's a big part of it if you can you know i've always said you can you know whether you're leading or following you better you to do both you know I'm, I'm a good leader but i'm also a really good follower it's kind of like being a good talker and being a good listener um you know the the job of the the technical job of the first ad uh, typically when I start a project is I'll get the script. Um, I'll do what's called a breakdown of the script. So I do a scene by scene breakdown of a script. Um, used to do it manually. I'd get a get a uh, you know printed draft and I would use a set of highlighters and have my notepad and I'd go through each scene of the script and you know who's in that scene. what is it a day? Is it a night? Is it a set? Is it a location? If, if I know that information, I don't always know that. Sometimes that's decided later if it's going to be a built set or if it's a location. Uh, what actors, what props, what elements are necessary to make the scene work, extras, things like that. <clears throat> and then all that information is entered into a, a program called Movie Magic. And Movie Magic then allows you to take all of the scenes and they're in a strip, strip board. Uh, and then from that, I create a schedule so I can, the calendar function of the, of the movie magic allows me to set the dates that we might be shooting. How many days a week or whatever days off are for holidays, things like that. But I can then put strips for every day. So the big, the biggest part of my job in pre-production is of course, is making the shooting schedule. So that is because that affects the budget that affects, um, all the other departments in terms of what's, you know, for the art department. Which sometimes is building enormous sets they have, when do these sets need to be ready okay we're building this submarine pen you know which is going to take three months to build so we need to do that uh uh we need to do you know put that at the end of the schedule because we're we're not you know we're start you know the actors are coming into town we'll start shooting on the first of the month and there's no way we're going to be ready in the first of month. so then so there are, you know, the schedule sometimes I remember I did a film here in Thailand about six years ago called Mechanic Resurrection, which was a Jason Statham, uh, Jessica Alba, Tommy Lee Jones film. And I, th- I was on that job for 27 weeks, I think I had 17 weeks of prep because it kept pushing the schedule, kept pushing back and pushing back. So I did I did probably 35 solid versions of the schedule. And then constantly juggling around actors' schedules because that's the other thing wow. that, that people don't. A lot of people wouldn't realize how, you know, you, that most actors, if in 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 today's marketplace, most ac- actors are, um, you know, busy. Yeah. So they're very busy. So uh, you're you're basically okay. They're they're available from the fourth of the month to the ninth, and then they're off to you know, Eastern Europe for two weeks, then they're available for these days, you know. So you spend a lot of time just juggling schedules for actors. So that's a big part of it. And then uh, then my goal, then my job as a first AD after the schedule set, we start shooting is to sort of, I run the meetings, I run the read-throughs, I, I supervise the rehearsals, I get make sure everything's necessary and arrives for, uh, you know, for rehearsals. And, uh, and then on the day, run the film set. So, okay, let's get everybody in. We're starting at seven o'clock, here we go. First shot is this, we're going here to there to the, you know, things like that. So, and then a little bit of everything. Sometimes, you know, I end up reading off camera lines because an actor is not available on a day. So I'll be the guy standing behind the camera, defeating actor, the actor, the on-camera actor lines and stuff like that.
0: Very cool. Very cool. And I think that's a great, you know, great way to explain it because I think a lot of these, these roles and they're so important, every single, every single role is important, but they get, they get overshadowed, you know, to the average, you know, viewer who doesn't get to see that whole side of how everything works. And it is,
1: it, it's the sausage making, you know, there's a it, lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's so much to it. Cause you, I mean, most people come to a film, and say what are all these people doing? Here? <laughs> all, they all sort of have a function. Yeah. You know, and then then you do like I was last week, uh, my my colleague, Paul, who I've done the last two projects I produced were with him. He's directing a tiny micro budget horror film, you know, which was shooting up in Khao Yai. It was about two hours north of Bangkok in Thailand here. And, um, you know, you realize also sometimes you don't need very much. Yeah, I mean, he's a director. He's a writer, director, cameraman, editor, you know producer as well i met him actually as a producer um before i knew he was a director but um you know and his wife was doing sound and you know there's one art department person one production person there's a you know uh, um one focus puller and and uh, that's a, that's all you have you know yeah. crew but it's, it's amazing what you can get done if it's the right script and the right crew <laughs> right oh for sure you know and the reason i say script is that you know he, he's not going to shoot a, a world war ii battle with a guy right. side right but 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 the right kind of story and this is a question people ask me all the time what can you make a movie for well it depends on the movie you want me it's like saying what can you build a building for well yeah. is it a is it a is it an outhouse or is it a world trade center i mean there's, there's that's the variety that you get in 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 filmmaking you know, an intimate story with just a few actors in a few locations, you don't need a lot and it can be done relatively cheaply, Yeah. but diehard, you know, you can't really do diehard well for that kind of money.
0: Exactly. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so. And, you know, another aspect of it is the, that, that, the bridge between it being, uh, you know, an art and it being a business, you know, the business side, as far as things got to move, I mean, there's money involved, uh, regardless, oh, yeah. but there's still, you know, so much consideration for the art of it and finding that balance is, is that's everything in yeah. film. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I think that's why you have to have
1: certain people watching out for certain things. Um, um, uh years ago i was i was i was doing a movie and the director was getting jordan brady who's a very funny guy and um mostly did commercials and we did this movie i think it was called uh, liars oh my gosh it came out as confessions of an american girl um and uh it was originally called lifers picnic so it was about these people in prison and once a year they had a they got to have their family come into the prison and have a picnic it was called lifers picnic so it's this kind of day in the life of this guy chris mulkey who's a great actor i've done like i think i've done three films with him and jenna malone was in it and mm-hmm. uh, um really interesting group of people uh but a great cast um but i'll never forget the director we were scouting one time and we we're on a scout of this prison in la and uh and uh uh he, we were walking around as myself, the director the line producer and the DP. And I'll never, forget somebody was asking the director a question, he's like, well, listen, I don't have a checkbook. That's his job. I don't wear a watch. That's his job, which was pointing <laughs> to me. So, you know, he was like, these guys got to keep me informed. Yeah. You know, when I said, when, when, when David says I got to move on, I move on. When he says, we got two hours to shoot the scene. I got to figure out a way to shoot the scene in two hours. And that, you know, so that's a big part of it. So that's where, you know, the collision of commerce and art is, is, you know, has been around since the days of hieroglyphics, frankly, you know, I mean, when your chisel broke on your hieroglyphics, that was it. You were done until you found another chisel. So, um, so your, your, your art can be suspended by your, you know, your, your, the, the limits and the resources of commerce. So, um, with films, it's, it's, the problem is, is that it's an incredibly expensive medium, um it demands that you are prepared. It demands that you sort of have a, you know, as, as on the creative side, you, you, you you know, I think it's it's incumbent upon people to be prepared, to have a, a vision, to have an idea of where they want to go with. And that, that sort of attitude, that sort of mindset transcends everything. <clears throat> because then as an actor comes to set, um, the last thing an actor wants to hear is uh, when he asks a question and the director says, I'm not really sure. It's the last thing an actor wants to hear it, it talk about you know what what an actor's job is what they have to do on a daily basis exposing themselves and you know finding these you know emotions and and different different elements of their character that only i believe that the, the you know real performance only comes uh great performance comes from a uh a standpoint of confidence and um and uh they have to have that they it's it's incumbent upon a director to make the the actors feel like you really know what you're doing and you have your act together. So super important there.
0: So one thing uh, I was really curious about is what prompted the move to Thailand?
1: Well, serendipity, uh, frankly, I was, um, I was asked, uh, by my former partner, Will, uh, Tiao to come on board a project that was, uh, he wanted to make My friend, Will had moved from Washington DC to LA and he was, uh, he was, wanted to pursue a career in acting. And um, he had worked in politics in Washington. And he was a PMI, was a presidential management intern in the Clinton White House and a little bit in the George W. Bush White House. And he was Taiwanese American. And his parents had emigrated from Taipei in the 60s, uh, just, just about the time, you know, early when the US started granting uh, visas to. Uh, Chinese and Taiwanese people to come and study here, and that's his parents had come here and then relocated. And Will was born in in Kansas, which is where his father went to school and then became a professor there. Um, but I, I knew nothing about Taiwan, Thailand. I'd heard, you know heard of these places and stuff, of course, but I'd never really traveled much, and I'd never been to Asia anywhere near Asia, really, <clears throat> and uh, unless you count Fiji, which is more Polynesia, but I'd worked there in, in two thousand one. But um, 2002, rather, in Fiji, but um, the um, I met him through a director that I knew, and um, he told me, yeah, this is a friend of mine. He uh, wants to be an actor and, you know, come to here, and we met and got to know each other, and <clears throat> he was always saying, well, yeah, how do you know, for, you know, the, the, the number of roles are so limited for, uh, you know, Asian-American actors and stuff like that, and how do you break into it? I said, well, you know, your best thing is to, is basically to to make your own movies. If you really want to give yourself parts, I mean, you look back and that's a, a been a proven way for people to sort of get their break in the business is to do it themselves. Yeah. And he's like, uh, uh, so I said, you know, so produce something, you know, and, and uh, so, okay, well, how do you produce? I said, well, producing the nuts and bolts of it, you know, can take years to learn. But I said, producing is basically raising money, yeah, that's really what producing is. I mean, finding a script, there's a, you know, in, in so, certainly in Southern California, you can, you, know, you can hit a golf ball and you're going to bounce off of, you know, 10 writers before you hit <laughs> it. And um, so, uh, so I said, it's, it's really about raising money. He's like, well, I come from the world of policies go, that's all I do is raise money. You know, that's that's what politics is. It's all raising money. You know, I mean, as you know, I mean, now you know, our, our political systems are so out in the open, they're so, you know, ever present in our daily lives that we all know, you know, how much money plays a part in that. So, um so he said so he set out over the course of a few years, he set out to, to develop a project and then he came to me with some ideas and and I just said, Well, listen, I think if you're gonna make a movie, you should do it um, you know because i want to do something about taiwan and about the uh, understanding of taiwan and the politics of it and i'm like taiwan great i love Thai food uh but i didn't you know that i was kind of joking i knew there were two different places but i didn't know a lot about taiwan and he explained to me sort of what had happened in taiwan after world war ii and and what had happened with chiang kai shek and the kmt and, and how you know martial law was instituted there in 1948 stayed in place till 1988 uh, longest period of martial law in modern history and uh but during that time Taiwan had, you know, had grown from a tiny little island nation and part of, sort of part of China at the time. Um, and in the 40s it wasn't because it was, Mao Zedong was mainland and Chiang Kai-shek had basically commandeered Taiwan as his own um, after World War II when, when those two started fighting again after they'd gotten rid of the, the Japanese. <clears throat> so... Um, Anyway, so he wanted to do a story about about some. He explained some incidents that had happened, and I said, "Well, I said, I said, for me, the key is your audience is me. You don't need to make Taiwanese people know this. I said, guys like me don't know this, so it's going to be fascinating to us. So I said, I think you should make a story, but tell it through the eyes of an American character. So maybe it's a, something that has happened, and some, you know, uh, he talked about this famous murder of a of a Taiwanese professor on the, on a college campus." He it, it, it was actually a, a Carnegie Mellon professor, but he had wow. gone back to Taiwan and had been a dissident and a very outspoken critic of the KMT. And he actually was murdered, they say, even though he fell, fell off a building at, uh, at Taiwan, Uni- Taipei University. Um, and um, so uh, we changed that a bit and we made it. Uh, so he, I said, May it tell, it, tell it to the guy who's investigating Let's see it through his eyes. And I use my, my Chinatown comparison. Let's make it through the eyes of this guy. So the audience has to learn as our character learns. So it's the perfect guy because he's completely ignorant of, he didn't know, you know, we play him as a guy who is not super, you know, versed in, in, in Asian politics and Taiwanese politics and stuff like that. So for him going to Asia is a complete fish out of water story, you know, to investigate this murder. And that's what ended up happening. So we ended up developing that and, um, and he brought on a writer. He started raising money and uh, was, you know, and then I was off kind of doing projects. I was off in New Mexico and did, a, you know, working as a first AD here and there. And then he and the director who was originally attached to it, who had introduced me to him, um, uh, called me up one day. And I was back in LA and they said, listen, we want to be free for lunch tomorrow. And I said, sure. So he said, we'd like you to come on board this as a producer, uh, because we need, we're, he, Will was starting to raise some significant money and I think Dominique, the director at the time, saw that he was starting to form some alliances with some people that, you know, you know cause once you, if anybody, you actually have money in Hollywood, you're like, a, you're like a, an unbelievable magnet, most powerful magnet in the world. And every, every charlatan and scumbag on the planet you know, is gonna come and glom on. And Dominique saw that the project could, could get out of hand with that with some of the people that he was choosing to associate with. And Dominique and I had a long relationship and got along well. So, he said, why don't you come on board as a producer? And I said, okay. I said, you know, but, you know, and I kind of set some ground rules. I said, in terms of, you know, we don't touch any money now. We don't touch any, you know, we don't take salaries. We don't take anything because that's typically what most people do. But I said, we want to make a good, we want to make a film. We want to make a good film. <clears throat> so, I came, officially came on board through a series of negotiations. And then, um, brought on our new writer. I, I read the draft of the script and I, I wasn't particularly impressed with it. And it just, it was, I just, tonally, it was wrong. And it was just not, it was going off into too many different directions, I felt. So, brought on another writer. It was someone I'd worked with and was a friend of mine. And he turned in a draft, didn't really want to make some of the changes we wanted. So, we got another writer. And then, when, yeah, you know, then another writer. And then that director, Dominique, left the project. And then we, so we were directorless for a while, but we had raised most of the money we needed. So we had about five and a half million dollars in the bank and ready to make a movie. Um, so we, I, we approached a director that I knew in uh, Paris who had I'd done a film uh, called My Sassy Girl with a brilliant director who's now still a very good friend of mine, Jan Samuel, who's a brilliant guy. Um, and uh, for your viewers out there, if you ever get a chance to see a movie called Je d'Enfant, or uh, 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 is the, the French title, uh, the American title. It was It's, it's with uh, Guillaume Canet from uh, The Beach and numerous other films. He's actually a pretty well-known director now. Mm-hmm. And Marianne Cotillard, the French actress, oh, yeah. who was in, you know, she's won the Academy Award for uh, La Vie en Rose. And she uh, um, was in, you know, just, uh, Couple of Chris Nolan films, of, yeah. Uh, you know, Inception and and uh, of course uh, Batman Ret- uh, dark, the third one, yeah. dark Knight Rises, Rises, yeah. yeah. Um, and she's so they're in it. Is there early something they had done in two thousand? I think two thousand three, two thousand two, two thousand three. It's a great film called Love. The, the American title, if you can find, it, it's called Love Me If You Dare. Uh, it's a great film, very dark, but but in, incredibly well done, uh, visually stunning. So anyway, so Will and I you know, I, I, he said, what do you think of, what if we approach Jan about doing this? And I said, sure, let me call him. So I called him up and said, I want to talk to you about something. Are you around? And he's like, yeah, I'm around in, in France. I like say, take I said, well, Will and I are getting on a plane in a couple of days are going to see you? He's like, do you want to just talk on the phone? I said, no, this is something we need to see you in person for. So uh, it might've just been an excuse for a trip to Paris. But um, so we flew off to Paris, met with Jan, told him the idea of what we had, this film that we had wanted to do and thought he would make a, a good, you know, director for it. So he originally agreed to come on board. He started working on the script. So we spent about four days in Paris and I stayed at his house and Will was off. Will had gone, spent some time in college in Paris. So he had some friends there. So he spent some time around and we pitched, you know, yawn the idea and then we let him alone for a couple days. And then actually I went off to England because the first time I'd ever been to England, saw some friends. We all met back in Paris on a Sunday night. And he said, yeah, I'll do it. I want to come on board and I have some ideas and so we, you know, he started working on the script and a couple of weeks later, he was coming to LA to do the final mix on My Sassy Girl, the film we had done in New York. And uh, he gave us a script, he'd done, he'd come up with something in two weeks that, you know, four of the writers hadn't come up with in two years. So, um, um, and then sadly, just his agent at CAA ended up, you know, we wasn't comfortable with him going out making a film with these two guys who the, the agent had never heard of and was insisting that we bring on this other producer and all these expensive elements. I need this because we needed their help. to, We were hoping that CAA was going to package this for us. And um, so it turned into a, a bit of a protracted battle between myself and this agent. Uh, just a lot of back and forth. And um, the SAG strike was coming up. This is 2007. Oh, yeah. And the writer strike was happening. So I was like, Will, would this this whole project could just go away. Well, I know we got money and stuff like that, but if we don't get, get moving on something, you know, we're going to be in trouble. <clears throat> so sadly we had to, uh, we decided to make the movie because we our our business plan allowed us to raise additional funds if we brought in a bigger cast. But so we decided not to, we decided to make the movie for the five and a half or so million dollars we had in the bank and, uh, and just do it. Just go, instead of go for some sort of big name, we just wanted to, uh, let them, you know, the, the, the value of the, the story and the piece, you know, speak for itself. So, uh, so Jan had to step away from the project sadly. And then I brought in a guy who was one of my best friends at the time uh, as a DP director, and he came on board uh, and did the film. And so as I was researching the project to put it together, uh, it was pretty clear we couldn't really shoot in Taiwan. It was a very politically, a political hot potato. And um, I talked to some friends that had worked in Thailand and um, so I, I was trying to figure out the budget and how much we could, you know, how much time we could get to shoot if we, because part of the story took place in Chicago and part of it took place in, in, in Taiwan. And it is all set in 1981. Oh, so we were looking for something that fit the period. So Chicago easily, because Chicago is a yeah. sort of pretty timeless city. And, and I'd done I'd just done a film there, a film that Michael Keaton directed called uh, called The Merry Gentleman. And so I was pretty familiar with Chicago and spent a little bit of time there. I was, had a great time. And um, that's how we picked Chicago because originally the story was set in Kansas and in Taiwan, uh, yeah. Kansas. There's no real infrastructure to shoot there. There's no crews there. We have to bring everybody <laughs> in. And um, so we chose Chicago. And then we did a scouting trip to, I found a company here called Living Films, who I've since worked with many times. Um, uh, they were recommended to me by uh uh, production manager, friend of mine and, uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine. And, uh, she, uh, so I got in touch with this guy, Chris Lowenstein. And, and, uh, a few weeks later, we were on the move heading to, uh, coming into uh, Thailand and we scouted here and we spent, uh, four days originally We stopped in Taipei. We looked at Taipei for a few days, just to kind of get a feel for it. And then we moved over to, um, came over to Bangkok and looked around here and we found most of the locations we needed so we knew this was going to be a, a perfect time so
0: and did how did that how did that film end up uh did it come to fruition oh yeah we shot it i just saw it again for the first time in about 11 years um
1: sadly i mean it was it was a tough show i actually left the project in post production mm. uh, there was a lot of lot of conflict between myself and the director and myself and Will, and they, they had kind of teamed up. And so I was just the bad guy all the time. Cause I was always the one saying, we can't afford this. We can't afford that. <laughs> and Will, Will ended up. Yeah, exactly. So what the, Will ended up taking one of the more significant roles in the film. Originally was going to take a small piece. And then uh, the director sort of, I think, in an effort to secure his position suggested will take one of the bigger parts in the film. And, um, so will was busy trying to be an actor instead of focusing on producing. So I was kind of left on my own. And then the director always had a way to get the, the yes that he was interested in for any sort of, you know, issue that arose by telling Will that it's like, well, in order for me to get the a great performance out of you, I need this, 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 and that. And I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. You know, so, so I so I was just the odd man out. And, and, um, um, so I left the project in post, um, but it, it came together well. I mean, it made no money. Yeah. The box because it never got a release and sadly, but you know, and the investors made zero cents on the dollar back. My ah. father was an investor. And, uh, so I don't know where, where the money that came in, where it actually went, if, mm-hmm. if there was any money that came in. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, it was, um uh, uh, uh it introduced me to Thailand though. It was yeah. a tough time in my life, but, um, but it introduced me to Thailand. Uh, it, I, I learned a lot, learned, you know, I got, you know, I, it, it had been about seven years since I produced the film. So it was nice to, to kind of be back in that mode.
0: So, and a couple other uh kind of points on your, on your filmography here and as yeah. a first assistant director, Um one I was really curious about was Oculus. Yeah. Uh, what was that like working with uh, Flanagan? Um, it was interesting. He's an interesting guy. Um, I can't say as we, we got
1: along fairly well. It was, he was, uh, it was his first sort of bigger film to direct. And I think he yeah. was, uh, he and Michael, the DP worked together quite well, but you know, it was, I was never like involved in the meeting. So I, it was, it was a really tough film to schedule. It was really, um, the production uh, was a, was not the most organized production I've ever been a part of um, some nice people. And I liked working in Alabama, but um, you know, like right, literally we spent, you know, I spent three weeks making a schedule because it's such a complicated story of all the, yeah. the flashbacks and everything like that. And then about three days before shooting uh, the line producer who'd been gone for a while, he shows up and says, like, Oh, by the way, we had to change everything. We're going to redo So, so to try to do, then I had to do like three weeks where they work in three days to come up with a new schedule. And it was really tough. And, um, um, so it was always a struggle for resources on that. I mean, Mike was a lot of fun. We, we had, we had a lot of fun, you know, at the hotel and we would, you know, a lot of drinking from what I remember <laughs> and, uh, um, playing uh, cornhole, which I never had played before, which wow. Is the, and the bag of the know, bag bean bags. It's yeah. Yeah. So a lot of that, a lot of late night cornhole drinking. <laughs> and, uh, um, but but uh the cast was great uh i loved working with karen she was great and uh um uh you know really really fun group of people um uh in front of the camera so um and i like a lot of gr- gr- i like the local crew a lot a lot of the the, the bammons yeah down in, <laughs> down in fairhope and in, uh um you know outside of mobile alabama for a few months so uh but
0: uh it was, it was an interesting time yeah and and it's kind of the bigger smaller horror film you know range as far as as far as production size so those are always fun stories to hear about like you know how everybody kind of comes together in a way
1: yeah well it's a it's a a brilliant script i Mm -hmm. mean mike's a great writer and he's really has a a flair for for story when it comes to this kind of stuff and and uh he really has a sense of that and uh and he and Mike had come up with some really interesting, interesting ways to shoot it. Yeah. So the way we were going to shoot it, transition in and out of of characters, and it was the hard part. Of scheduling was is like I mean, you're transitioning from the kids, you know, yeah. in a house, you know, this full a house that's fully you know lived in, and transitioning quickly over to someone who's, you know, an adult now, and the house is empty. So right. we had to scheduling this empty house, and what was going to be originally was going to be completely repainted and changed. And said, no, no, we can't do it that way anymore. We got to do it. So we, oh my god. So it was because we were going to shoot in the house old and then go out for a week and then come back in and shoot the house empty, you mm-hmm. know? And it, and it was like, no, we can't, we can't afford to move in and out. It's like, Oh God, you're kidding me. So <laughs> we were like, then it was like, okay, so we had the schedule where it's like, cut. okay, we're shooting in the bedroom and then we move from the living room. And while we're in the living room, they're making the, the bedroom <laughs> old. Again, and then we move back in the bedroom. It's just So, and, and keeping that straight mentally was, mm-hmm. was, was really tricky. Yeah. So, um, and, um, so it it was an interesting challenge, and it, I thought the film came out really good. Yeah. I really enjoyed uh, watching it, and I enjoyed reading it. Um, working on it was
0: was was hard, but it, but still rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the um, other the other one is uh, the artist. What's it called? The artist.
1: The artist. That sounds kind of familiar. No. I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, that's
1: uh, the the it's one of those films comes along and sort of changes your life in a good yeah. way. Yeah. Um, I think for and for a lot of people, it did it, it, it didn't change my life uh, to the extent that it changed a lot of other people's lives, but in a great way. I mean, uh, that was one of the most fun, one of the most fun I've ever, uh, funnest experience I've ever had on a film. Uh, I love the director, mm-hmm. uh, Michel, who I still keep in touch with. I see him when I go to Paris. Uh, the DP, also Guillaume, was a great friend. Uh, the line producer, my friend Richard Middleton, who brought me on the show. I think we've done seven movies together. And um, uh, so that was great. I uh, had a great team. I worked uh, for the first time I was, I was a co-first lady. There was a French uh, gentleman named James Canal, mm. who was also a friend. Uh, um, so, but I think he had a pretty easy, I, I like to think he had a pretty easy job there because <laughs> me and my guys, were, we, uh, I, you know, they. when I first got hired on the job, it was like the, the pay was, you know, because of my, my love, my friend, Richard, if you're listening, you know, the pay was pretty, pretty weak, but he said, Oh, it's going to be easy. There's going to be two of you. You only do have to do half the work. Um, <laughs> that job is one of the, I've, I think I've worked harder on that job than many jobs I've ever done, but I literally loved every minute of it. Um, any
0: reason in particular, um, what's that, any reason in particular why it was harder?
1: Oh, just, there was just a lot to do. Um, and the degree of specificity, uh to work with an artist like michelle has and um and it, it was it was ambitious we had a very i mean the budget was about 10 million dollars and uh you know but it needs to look like a 50 million dollar film so with dealing with a lot of extras everybody in period costume everybody in, you know uh sets that were built finding places in la that were you know uh, period look period appropriate and stuff like that was was an interesting challenge uh but uh it was uh but it was great it was it was it was hard but once again just and long hours we did we worked and the french the we had a french dp a french script supervisor a french first ad uh french director of course uh and a few other people had come over and uh, some of the production people and uh they were amazed at the hours that we worked because people always joke about French. Well, you work eight hours, you drink wine. At lunch. <laughs> well, we work fourteen hours, and yeah. we eat, you know, you know, eat a good lunch. But there's no alcohol involved, sadly. <laughs> uh, so, but it was it was a great project. It was you know uh, working with the dog with Uggy was was yeah. just a blast. The dog was brilliant. Uh, Jean Dujardin, um, who I subsequently worked with on a project that he directed called Les Infidels or The Players and that he cast me in uh, because um, as I was saying earlier that sometimes as a first AD you do whatever is necessary on a set so we had John Goodman we had him for eight days on this movie so we had to you know we and he we were sharing him with another film so he'd be with uh-huh. us one day and the next day he was off doing this Kevin Smith film and then he was back with us and then he was back, you know so we're back and forth so I remember we'd done done this scene we shot all this stuff on this behind the scenes of this movie set and uh, um, and then the next day we turned around and get the other side of it um, with uh, that we had to shoot on Berenice and and uh, John Goodman was not with us that day, so they took an apple box so if you know an apple box is like yeah. a, a wooden, wooden box that you see on film sets to to raise people up and to steady things so uh, sometimes they call them man makers which in my case as being all of five foot seven sometimes they call that a man maker. And uh, so I stood on the, the Apple box because John's like six foot three. So I stood on the Apple box and I was standing this to Jean Dujardin and I was doing John Goodman's lines to feed to Berenice, who was on camera. We were off camera. So um, and I've done off camera lines for years. I'm just used to doing it. And I used to do it. I, I did. I do some really bad impressions of, of, of actors. And uh, so I would occasionally do that, but it distracts them. So I, I don't really do a John Goodman impression but I could be loud like he could be so um so I so I spent the whole morning like doing off-camera lines and I'm standing right next to Jean and he was like you know he tapped me on the shoulder such a nice, you know such a nice guy and He's like good 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 messy messy you know so I'm like okay cool great thanks and um we uh, um, the next day Jean brings it comes a set and he's got a bottle of wine so David David for you my <laughs> friend my friend I'm like What's this for? Most for you, you're a very good actor, very good actor. I'm like, I'm not an actor, I'm Like an A.B. And he's like, no, for you, I want you to have. I'm like, oh, thank you. I mean, what is the nicest gesture I think I've ever had. And then in, then when at the end of the film, near the end, we were, it wasn't quite the last day, but we were shooting the, the finale in the film uh, of the artist, which was a dance sequence. Yes. Um, that then... For the first time in the entire movie, we rolled sound. So it just like right at the end of the dance and you hear the, the breathing. And then the director says, cut. And John Goodman's character, that was great. Uh, how about just once more? And uh, and Jean says, with pleasure. And um, so Guillaume and I, the DP and I, were setting up this, this whole shot, you know, all these, these these final shots and stuff. We had this one big shot where the camera starts, you know, close up on Jean and it pulls back. And we, you know, full, truly breaking the fourth wall and seeing back the guts of everything, the whole crew. And we had this, this period crane that we found with this big old camera that as the camera pulled back, this kind of crane swung in front of the camera. And we had our key grip, Manny, uh, Manny, who was a great, great key grip. He was playing the camera operator. And uh, so I'd been, I'd been setting up all the extras and all the people to do their crosses and stuff like that. And so Michelle came to set. And uh, we'd been, Gilman. and I had been working on it for a while. He's like, oh, so, so what do you have? And I said, okay, well, these, this guy's going to do this. This guy's that. This is our cameraman. So we turn around, we see him. He's a cameraman. We, this and that, and he's like, uh, he goes, okay, I need somebody to get it all together. And sorry for my bad French accent. He goes, I need somebody to get it all together. And I said, well, of course, it'll be fine. He's like, no. And he goes, no, on on camera. I need somebody. I said, okay. I said, There's, I've set aside three guys over there. And I think they'll be good. Is there, you know, what, as a, like a first AD. Which one do you like? And he said, I do not like them. I want you. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and um, Michelle and I had a tendency to only talk to each other in in profanity. So we called each other motherfucker. We never call <laughs> each other by our name. He's like, hey, motherfucker. I'm like, hey, motherfucker, how are you? <laughs> and so he said, I want you to do it. And I was like, fuck you, motherfucker. <laughs> and uh, so um, he's no, I insist. And the next day somebody grabs me and they send me off to wardrobe. And, uh, and, and you know, to be, uh, you know, dressed by our, you know, fantastic wardrobe, Mark Brooks, who, you know, Academy Award winning costume designer. And he got me all dressed up. And then I remember sneaking past the wardrobe, that the hair and makeup trailer. And I, hey, don't go anywhere. And they dragged me in there and they <laughs> shaved me and they cut my hair and all this stuff. And then, you <laughs> oh, know, I played the first AD on that. So I ad-libbed everything and I got to do a little scene with John Goodman that didn't make the film, but they kept most of my little lines
0: in I remember because you know our dad, he knew you were working on that at that time. Yeah. And when we finally saw it, we we weren't expecting that. And it gets to that final yeah. shot, and we, my dad was like, "Oh my god, it's David!" And we paused, <laughs> which we <were> like <laughs> all freaked out for a second. We were like, "It would make sure that that was you." We looked in the credits, we're like, "Yep, there he is." <laughs> oh my god, that's funny. Yeah. The other film I wanted to talk about was um, Monster. Monster. Two thousand three. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that was, um, that
1: was one of my first longer projects out of town. And I, I think I was, uh, when I was younger, I was always fascinated with the idea of, of, of traveling and working, going to new cities and, and being able to kind of, uh, you know, get paid to, to go learn a new city. Um, so kind of a funny story with that. I was, uh, Um, I had done a film in Cleveland in 2000, I think, which um, traveling to exotic places like Cleveland, Ohio, (laughs) movies was pretty exciting. And now I was going to go off to Orlando, Florida, (laughs) the home of the theme park. Uh, And uh, so um, I had um, I'd I'd been with an agent for a while, uh, which not a lot of first ads back then were with agents, but I guess I thought that was it. Was ended up being a pretty good step for me to be to sign with this agency called the Geller Agency at the time, and um, uh, so you know I, I'd done this uh, film in LA after after Cleveland. I came back to LA. I did a film called Nightclub, and then I did uh, with Lou Diamond Phillips, and then I got hired on a Jeff Bridges movie called Scenes of the Crime, and uh, that was with that director Dominique that I'd mentioned before, a French director, a good guy, and. Uh we we got along really well. We worked together really well. And um and working with Jeff Bridges was is uh also one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. Um, um just in terms of an absolute professional, a gentleman, mm-hmm. um immensely talented, kind, uh uh couldn't say enough good things about him. <clears throat> really great guy. And um, um It was after that job that I think I I signed with an agent and then so I started, you know, was was up for I started doing more interesting jobs here and there. And and um, um, one of the films I did was called Shade, which was had probably the most biggest group of high profile actors I'd worked with, which was uh, Gabriel Byrne, Tandy Newton, Sylvester Stallone, Melanie Griffith, Jamie Foxx. Hal Holbrook, who I got to work with for two days, who wow. was just an absolute pleasure. And the director, Damian Neiman, was an incredibly nice guy. Um, his first time directing. He had actually been a, a, he was a, he did card tricks, like amazing card tricks. <laughs> and he'd written a very good script about these poker hustlers. And um, the DP was Tony Richmond, who had uh, Tony, very interesting storied background. He was like a, a a loader, a camera loader on Lawrence of Arabia. And I think he was a focus puller on Dr. Shivago Wow. And, uh, he went on to be a, you know, then as a young man, as a DP, he's, he did let it be for the, so I'm like, dude, I'm like, wow. Sorry. Change. I said, Dude, you were on the rooftop with the, excuse me. You were on the rooftop with the Beatles. I yeah. was like, Jesus, you know? And then, you know, he did films like don't look now. And, and, uh, and then, you know, then, you know, much later, years later in his career, you know, like, uh, um, uh, Oh my gosh. What's the name? I'm spacing out. What's the name of the blonde, uh, uh, Reese Witherspoon film, uh, something blonde, illegally okay. blonde. Illegally blonde. Yes. <laughs> so I did legally blonde. And I mean, did, you know, in high profile, you know, bigger, yeah. more you know, studio fair kinds of films. So he was our DP on that. And mm-hmm. the director was a super nice guy. Uh, it was first time directing. So I got to work really closely with him and with the actors. And, um, uh, so we just had a great time. It was, it was a fun project to do, uh, uh, a bit of a, it, it just, it just, it never found an audience sadly. Um, but it was, it had the potential to be a really great film. It was through RKO. It was RKO pictures was sort of being revamped. Uh, but Merv Griffin was one of the producers. And then and that's shade. Mer- yeah, this is shade. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but one of the actors in it also was Stuart Townsend. Mm. Who at the time was, was living with or dating for a long time. They were, they were together was uh Charlie Starin. So she was around the set a bit and, um, very quiet, really kind of kept to herself. I remember one time, um, after work, um, I'd gone out for a drink with Gabriel Byrne and, um, Stuart Townsend they're both Irish, you know? So we went to, I think we went to Molly Malone's or something like that (laughs) in Hollywood. And, uh, and, uh, we, uh, and Charlize came along with us and, and I didn't really engage with her much didn't really talk with her much, but she was there. So we just kind of hung out a group of small group of people. And, um, um, but I had a great time on it. And then, um, cut to about eight months later, um, I got a call from my agent saying, listen, we got this project. This came over. It's, uh, an interesting project. It's very low budget. Um, but it's starring Charlize Theron. It's a, a, a director named Patty Jenkins. Uh, you should meeting. I said, sure. So they sent me the script or the, the company, the the company sent me the script and it was like, this was, I, I remember succinctly, this is the first time I'd gotten a script via email because <laughs> we weren't really, this was just at the beginning of sort of the email PDF kind of phase of yeah. life in 19, back in 2003. <clears throat> so, or late 2002 when I first interviewed for this. So... Um, I was doing a short film at the time that was directed by Hank Azaria. So we were in a look like, at supposed to be an eight day shoot. It went in, like 13 days for the short film. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to work on that uh, just because of what Hank and all, Hank was a pleasure to work with. And all of his friends would, yeah. you know, writers from the Simpsons came in. You know, so it was the funniest script you'd ever read and the great group, great cast and put together. Um, but I remember I like, think on my day off, I would scheduled to, uh, to uh, go for a meeting. So I, I got home one night. I'll never forget. I got home one night and there was an email saying, this is a script, you know, hi, this is a production for monster. This is a script for you. And I opened the script and it was, wasn't a script. It was some other PDF file, like a receipt or something like that. I'm like, oh, <laughs> God. So, and it was late at night. So I didn't, I didn't have anybody to call or anything. Like that, so I just sent an email to my agent saying, Hey, can you call these guys tomorrow? I said, tomorrow's my only day off. My, you know, um, can you call them and see if, if, uh, <clears throat> Uh, anyway, so I or I had the meeting. I had my meeting the next day, so I call. You know, so I show up to the meeting and I walk in the room, and it's really it was kind of a weird meeting because I'm I'm sitting in one chair, and then there's four chairs sitting across from me, and it's Patty and Clark and and uh, one of the two of the other executives uh, uh, on the Brent uh, from the production, and I'm like sitting across from them, I'm like hi hi, how's it going? And they're like, so what did you think of the script? And I'm like. Um, actually I didn't get the script when you guys sent me, it was some sort of receipt. And I remember that, Oh, Oh, I think that was a, a sales receipt from, you know, this other project was like, Oh no, like, no. God, this is so bad. We're so, we feel so bad. And, um, and they said, well, we don't think it's fair for you to have to interview having not read the script as, as a candidate, you know, cause you're, you're disadvantaged in the other candidates. So how about we, we do this again? And I said, okay, well, I think I have another, I have another day off in four days. And I said, fine. And I think they sent me away with a hard copy or something like that. So I remember, um, I read the script and I loved it. I thought, oh my God, this is super intense. And, and, uh, you know, and you thought of, you know, I did a little bit of research. There were some, you know, there were some videos you could find yeah. of, of, of the real Eileen Warnos, you know, and, and it was kind of like, so Charlize is going to be this person. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And, um, uh, so anyway, so I, uh, uh, eventually I went back to shooting on the short film. Then I had my day off and I went in and I met with them and, you know, got an actual chance to talk with Patty and, and everybody and and had a great conversation and I was driving home uh, from Century City where the office was. And I was driving back to Santa Monica. And just as I was pulling in my driveway, my agent called and said, they want you to do the job. I'm like, oh, great, good. And uh, she said that that's the good news. And I said, oh, great. What's the bad news? She's like, well, they told me what the money is. And, uh, so it was, it was an incredibly low salary. Um, and I was like, oh, come on. I said, go back to them with this amount and see what they say. So she called me back a couple hours later. I said, that's, that's the deal. If you want to do it, that's the deal. And I said, you know what? And, and then maybe a, a mistake at the time, probably, but I said, you know what? I think, I, I think, no, I think that's, that is bordering on, you know, you know, because I know D- D- Tony Richmond was going to be the DP who I'd done Shade with because mm-hmm. Charlize with him on some other projects. And um, and I thought, you know what? I don't think Tony Richmond being an ego, the ego that I had, because I was on the rooftop with the Beatles, wasn't I? Oh, I don't think I was. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I was thinking, you know, what, what's Tony getting kind of thing? You know, and, that, and that sometimes that happens. You know, you let your ego get in the way. And I said, no, I think I'll pass. <clears throat> so, um the next day i started back to work on the short film and i think two days later i got home and um there was a script on my doorstep because my agent used to just you know they would just hire a messenger and leave scripts for me if something came in that they wanted me to interview for so i got home and there was a script sitting on the door and and it was like nine o'clock at night so i called my agent and i was like "Uh, what's what's up with this she's like oh this is a project it's uh through, uh, this, I can't remember the name of the company. It's a somewhat known company. I think it was Ben Affleck's company at the time and Chris Moore's company. And I said, there's a project they're doing. It's about these group of kids in a, you know, that work in a restaurant and they'd love you. They, they know your quote, they're willing to pay you if you want to do it. So we'd love for you to interview. So I started reading it and, and maybe I was just in a bad frame of mind. And I just thought, this is terrible this bunch of fart jokes and puke jokes and stuff like that. And I just wasn't well, something I was interested in doing. I just remember I got to page 20 and I just remember throwing the script across my <laughs> living room and, and I picked up my phone and I called my agents and got her uh, called Maureen and I got her voicemail. And I said, you know what? I, this script is not very good. I'm not something interested. I said, do me a favor, call back the guys on monster. If they haven't found somebody yet, tell them I accept and so then, so, and then I'm, then I didn't sleep that night. Cause I'm like, Oh God, I've
0: lost
1: both am <laughs> You know, now they've got somebody else on monster and I'm not going to do that job and I'm going to do this. And... So she, the next day she called me back. I was on set and she called me around noon and my cell phone rang and she's like, yeah, yeah. So, okay. You're, you're set for monster. I said, okay, great, cool. And, um, and then Tony Richmond dropped out of that job. And the DP that I was working with on, on Hank's film was Tom Richmond. So there's going to be Tony Richmond. Now it's going to be Tom Richmond as the DP. So, um, and we're heading to the south. So we're going to lose. So we sadly, Tom only lasted about a week on that film. And sadly he was let go. And they brought in another DP just because uh, uh, Patty and Tom were, as Tom was, Patty was like, you wanted to move really fast. And Tom was a very deliberate, you know, artist kind of DP. And I think he needed, uh, I think she needed somebody who could move a little faster. So um, that was, and so anyway, so I, so cut to this was in December. So, um, then I was starting the job in January, I think around January 10th or something like that. I was, I was scheduled to fly out to, uh, to, uh, Orlando. And, uh, so I did, I got down there. Um, we had three, we, it was a really tough production, very limited resources. Um, uh, we only had three weeks to prep the movie Wow. And uh, part of that time, the DP, Tom, was in Sundance because a film he had was in Sundance. So, he was gone for like four days of the prep, mm-hmm. which is a big deal. And um, so, basically, we started, we did our tech scout. We only had about half of our locations when we did our tech scout. Um, but, but, but it ended up working out. We ended up finding everything we needed and uh, got into production. But it was, a, it was a really tough show. The original DP, Tom, who I'd known was a sweet guy and he was like, go. the new guy, they brought in, I did, he and I did not get along at all. And uh, <clears throat> neither did most of the crew. He had worked down in Orlando before, and most people were not too pleased to have him back, sadly. Um, but, but we got through it. Um, and I, I just never forget that when we were, um, we were tech scouting. So we were about four or five days from shooting. And we were down at this bar, the actual bar where Eileen Warnos was caught, where she used to live. She used to sleep wow. on 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 a a on a, on a a, a car seat, like a, you know, a bench seat outside the back of this bar. And that's where she slept most of the time when she was in that part of town. And, uh, and that was where we were there. And so I'm, you know, running the tech scout. So the guys, this we're going to shoot here. We're going to do this and this and that. And all of a sudden, you know, we've been, I've been getting texts saying, you know, Charlize and, and her team are coming in this morning. So they're going to meet us on the tech scout. So we're sitting there. I'm talking through the scene and all of a sudden Charlize comes walking in the door at the, at this bar. And uh, she was so funny because she was so quiet when I met her before. She just didn't say much. She was just very kind of shy and reserved and just kind of kept to herself. And she watched it and she was like, oh, fuck, Cluck. I knew that was you. I fucking knew that was you. Oh, my God. I can't believe you're here. So she comes up, and gives me a big hug. And it's just like, and I'm all these people are looking at me like, I uh, oh, yeah, great to see you. She's like, oh, this is going to be great. And, um, and that just, you know, so that's and it, that was the relationship with her from then on out. And from and with Patty, oh, I got along really great with Patty. So um, I get along with Patty well, and she went on, of course, to do Wonder Woman movies and Wonder Woman and stuff like that. But um, um, so um, so Charlize was great; just an absolute pleasure to work with. Hardest working actor I've ever met. I mean you know, with, with actors on, on, especially on bigger films, you know, it's all about, you know, you know, you work certain hours and you have to, you get 12 hours rest and, you know, they don't no forced calls. No, I mean a forced call is when you call an actor in sooner than their 12 hours of turnaround. And usually there's a $900 called a forced call fee that they get and stuff. And, and, uh, but Charlize was kind of like, you know, at the end of this is say, clock. What time you need we be 10 o'clock at night? It's like, Cluck, what time you need me tomorrow? I'm like, Sorry dear it's 7 she's like I'll be here cuz she I mean she had to go through they got her makeup a uh, Tony G who did our makeup uh and hair on that um was amazing and sadly was not nominated and I think Return of the King or something like that won for makeup yeah. where they had like a 67 person department that did that and Tony was <laughs> one person wrecking crew and did the makeup on that with Charlize um, and she was great so much, but they got it down where she could do her makeup in about 45 minutes. Wow! So she wore, she had contacts in, uh, she had dyed her eyebrows, uh, which took a, you know, made some big difference, but the brown contacts and then the fake teeth. We had this uh, uh, pretty well-known, I guess, a guy who's like a Hollywood dentist who came in and did these, these fake teeth for her, which looked great. And uh, so, um, but they could do her makeup really quickly and she'd be on set. And she just, she just, um, she became this character in a way that was just remarkable. And, um, to, you know, to possess this, you know, to, for this, you know, to see this, you know, she was almost possessed in a good way. I mean, she, she became, I think, mean, and the beauty of it was is that she and Patty got along so well. There was such a trust there that it was, uh, um, Watching them work together, seeing how they did it, and and to see Charlie's performance in that, and for me to trying to keep control of what was a very tense, sort of problematic set in terms of some personalities, um, just keep every you know. And my goal, another one of my goals, and my jobs as a first AD is to to create an environment and a vibe on set where actors and a director, if there's production problems, they don't see that. <clears throat> they can't they can't see that when they come to set, everything needs to be hunky dory. So if somebody, you know, if the if the dolly grip's pissed off at the boom guy, then you know, that's stop it, shut up. The actors are coming to set. They need to come to a harmonious place, or they can't do their job. Their job is is different, is unique to everybody else's on the film set. It's an equal everybody's got an equal, equally important job. I mean, you're not gonna get a good you're not gonna get a good movie if you have a, you know, if the boom operator can't get, you know, good, can't get in there and, and not cast shadows and and all this stuff. So everybody's got an important job to do, but but they are unique and um so um watching charlise give that performance and being standing you know within five feet of her to see that performance and that was it was amazing and that that film also did a lot for my career certainly early on up until the artist that was that was you know to to win the academy award for best act. i mean Charlize won every award that year and yeah um, that was uh really a pleasure to be a part of but it was also i, I was the difference was like the artist years later um Like after Monster, it was just because it was a tough production and not a lot of people got along. Um, I I don't think I saw any. I saw Charlize again. I saw Patty again, but I never, I don't think I saw any of the, uh, most of the other producers or the production crew, except for my guys, my regular guys, again. Where on the artist, I mean, when, you know, it was, uh, when we started getting awards, when we premiered at Cannes. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, constantly texting with, with Michelle, you know, what's going on, what's, what's, what's going on. (laughs) Screening for Harvey Weinstein tomorrow. Keep your fingers crossed for us, you know, and, you know, hearing all the information from them and, uh, then an award season. So I remember, I remember, uh, when, when monster, when the Academy Awards happened, when monster, when Charlize was up for monster, I was down at my dad's house and and my dad and I just sat and watched the the award show. Um, and then for the artist, I mean, I was at the, uh, the Weinstein company party. And, Mm -hmm. and I'd gone to the Oscar nominees luncheon and which was the most unbelievably surreal moment of my life, I think. And, you know, but several screenings and Q and A's and, and dinners with Jean and Michel and Guillaume and the gang and just, just constantly hanging out and just, you know, uh, because they were, you know, they're all from Paris. So they'd come to LA. And so we were always out doing something with them and just, you know the uh, the parties and the oscars and the after party till six in the morning at the chateau marmont and uh, it was just a crazy time so it was just and so much fun you know and everybody posing with the oscar statues and stuff like that so and you know uh, you know to to be nominated and the artist to be nominated for 11 awards and to win 5 was was great you know yeah it was a big deal and uh and uh you know mark Mark Brooks, once again, you know, I got to pose with his Oscar. He was a great costume designer and production designer. He does all of Paul Thomas Anderson's stuff and numerous yeah. other things. But he's such a pleasure to work with. What a what a brilliant, talented, great guy. I mean, so many mov- so many people on that film were just were just sort Not of much. the best, best, best. You know, the best. You know, really great people. And uh, so, um, and, and one I, one story was kind of funny. I remember when. Uh, um, it was in January and um, I was, one thing that happened, two quick stories. I was, I was in, got invited to be part of the Hua Hin, which is a city outside of Bangkok. It's about two hours away. It's a beach town called Hua Hin, uh, a resort place. And they had a film festival. And um, so I got to uh, come down and, and be a part of the film festival. I invited some actor friends to come and an actor and an agent that I'd known. Had come from la and i invited some other friends from bangkok to be part of the whole opening night and and ryan gosling was there and <laughs> and, and nicholas winding Refn because they were just getting ready to start shooting a movie uh, called god forgives which yeah. shot here so i got to you know so we were in like this whole little vip area for the opening ceremony of this film festival in this beautiful resort the intercontinental hotel in Hawaii and they'd cut off, they'd set off this whole area by the pool, big grassy area. And they had a stage with a huge couple of big screens. And they so did the whole introductions, all these people making speeches, and a big fireworks show, and then a private dinner for everybody. And, you know, I got to spend several minutes talking to Ryan. It was the first time I met Ryan Gosling. He was a super nice guy. And um, um, But I remember I Richard Middleton had called me, who was the line producer on, uh, on, uh, on The Artist, and he's like, So, Mr. Clock, he has this great deep voice. Uh, The artist has been nominated for the Director's Guild Award. And the Director's Guild is for, like, it's for the directing team. So it's not just the director, best director, it's the best directing team. So you need to be here at 5 o'clock on Saturday. Can you make it? because if not, I'm giving your ticket to someone else. I was like, I'll be there. I'll be there. I was in Bangkok, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm 19 hours away, you know, in Bangkok. So, and this opening ceremony in Hua Hin was uh, in, uh, I was was supposed to be, that was on a Thursday night and I needed to be in LA on a Saturday or some crazy time where I literally was there for the whole opening ceremony, dinner, out dancing, partying with all my friends. And it, Five in the... No, three in the morning, I got picked up by a car at 3 a.m. in Hua Hin. That car drove me to the airport in Bangkok. I brought all my clothes with me. I got on a plane at 7 a.m., flew to Tokyo, crossed the Dateline. So I guess it was it was Friday. It was Saturday morning. Now it was Friday again. And I got on a plane in Tokyo, got into L.A. It was Saturday at noon. Wow. I went and I bought a tuxedo. And... um had it. it then I, I went straight to the tuxedo place, got fitted for a tuxedo. They made alterations while I drove home to Santa Monica and, and showered <laughs> and shaved, went back, picked up my tux, went home, changed, got in the car. And I was at the, the, uh, Kodak theater by five o'clock. So I literally wow. just had not stopped besides sleeping on an airplane. So that was, a, that was one of the great, so we, we went and we win the DGA award, you know, which was great. So, uh, um, it was just a great night. It was good. And it was my first time seeing Michelle in, in a month or so. So it was fun to see him and James and, and, you know, and Dave and Carla and Ricky and my whole team that worked with me on that show was great. And, you know, we won, it was, it was, it was, uh, uh, you know, highlight was one of the, just one of the, one of the five greatest moments in my life, you know, be, be, be with the exception of maybe getting married and having kids with the birth of my child is the great, Oh, I've never been married and I don't have any kids though.
0: So I think that's probably <laughs> the best moment of my life.
1: But, um, but that was a, a great story. And then, uh, um, yeah, so we, had, we just had some some so many fun times with the artist and and, uh, and uh, all of that. All of the stuff that went along with it was, was great too. And also because I, I just love the people so much. They're just a, such a classy group and talented and smart and funny and, and cantankerous and you know, could fight with them and still love them you know, <laughs> argue and still, you know, still love and respect them. So it was great. So
0: I think my last uh, question and kind of thing I wanted to talk about was what is the the biggest difference that you think you've felt uh, working in the industry back here in the States and the industry over there in Thailand?
1: Well, <clears throat> that's an interesting question because part of it is, in the time that i've been coming to thailand uh really since 2008 i mean i came i came in 2008 to make foremost of Be trade and that was my first time ever in asia um and if somebody had told me then you know you're gonna fly off to thailand you know having grown up in southern california you're gonna fly off to thailand you're gonna fall in love with this you know little country in southeast asia and you're gonna pick up and move there i'd have been you're crazy i mean i live in la i mean i live i have a home in santa monica i got you what, so it was. It was. It was. Uh, to say it was life changing is is obviously an understatement, but um, but also the digital revolution was fully in swing at that time. Like the last movie that I did, that was the whole thing was shot on film, was The Artist, actually. So that was two thousand and ten, late two thousand and ten. Um, and since then, every, almost everything I've done with the exception of some commercials. And then when I worked on a, I did second unit on a movie called gold, which filmed here, a Matthew McConaughey film. Um, and so I just worked a couple of weeks on that here in Thailand, that my friend Richard was the line producer wrong. Um, that was shot on, that part of the film was shot on film. And then the red when they, they only did about a third of the movie in Thailand. And then the, they shot in New Mexico for Reno and then they shot in New York city. And those were all shot on HD, just because I think they had budget, because you know, they, they started going over on the budget. Um, and um, so the digital revolution kind of, like I said, coincided sort of with um, the major change going on in the world. So for me, the change that happened for me personally from 2000, so after 2008, I made the film here, you know, went home. I thought, well, I want to come back. I'm going you know, to see it because I'd only seen like the inside of a hotel room, the inside of a van on the way to the set <laughs> and the set, and then back in a van and back to the hotel room for for two months, you know, so I hadn't really seen Thailand. So, I decided to come back. Um, uh, Paul Spurrier, who is my colleague now, who I've done three other films with since then, he's a writer director, but he was actually brought on by Living Films, our production service company to kind of be our fixer, to be our, our, the head of the kind of local line producer. So I worked hand in hand with him and we got along quite well. And then I uh, was coming back to, I decided I'm going to come to Thailand for the holidays. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to fly in on Christmas day and I'll stay for two weeks and uh my buddy Kyle was gonna come with me and at the last minute he kind of flaked on me so I was like oh what am I gonna do so I get on Skype with Paul I'm like so well I was you know I was thinking of coming to Thailand but you know Kyle sort of bailed on me I was gonna you know and he's like Paul's like come on over you know me you know you met a bunch of my friends come on over you we'll hang out so and that's so I came here for two weeks and I stayed for three weeks because I kept extending my flight home I was like what am I going home for I got nothing to go home for man I'm yeah. having a great time in Bangkok you know and um and then i went back so stayed for my three weeks so i went back to l.a i went to, i ended up going to new york to uh to uh, produce some promos i used to produce a lot of promos for uh viacom for vh1 and nickelodeon and mtv and stuff so i was in new york for a month and this was in 2009 right as the economy so obama was just taking office so we everything was in the midst of change my life the country uh the world in the digital world and the filmmaking world was all changing rapidly um so then jobs just started going away. It's 2009. So the economy was taking a dump and I, you know, jobs started going away. So a few months later, I'm on Skype with Paul just catching up. He's like, so when are you coming back to Bangkok? And I'm like, why would I come back to Bangkok? He's like, well, what are you doing in LA? I'm like, nothing. He's like, well, you can do nothing in Thailand.
0: and enjoy your life.
1: I'm like, yeah. So I literally was on the phone and I bought it. And a few days later, I was back in Bangkok and I stayed for a month and uh, then I came back and then a friend of mine was coming here to see some friends and maybe look at some movie projects. So I came back with him. Then I came back for the film festival in 2009. Then I came back for Christmas again. And then I just started coming back and forth a lot. And then basically, if I wasn't working, I was coming here and I would kind of just stay around different hotels, different neighborhoods, just wanted to learn the city. And uh, it was f- amazingly easy to learn, Surprising, considering what a massive, enormous city it is and, you know, not speaking the language, but it's pretty easy. It's an easy city to live in for an expat because a lot, lots, a lot of stuff in English and it's an easy city to learn for me. And, um, and then I started working here. So um I, I got an offer that was after the artist actually I I'd, I'd gone back I remember telling some friends because there was a movie that was shooting here Scorpion King 3 and somebody said hey you want to work on that? I said I've actually I'm just going back to LA next week cuz I'm doing this French silent film that nobody's ever going to see you know who's going to watch it <laughs> stuff like but I'm but I'm committed it's with some friends so I'm going to, I've got to go back to LA and um then obviously that you know changed my life and and uh and then i'd become better friends with paul and we talk, started talking about projects we wanted to develop he sent me some scripts that he'd written which i really liked and we tried to i started working to try to get those set up different places and um and then uh, through my friend here tom waller he uh asked if i wanted to work as a first ad on a on a small film uh, but it, it was ninja 2 for millennium films and it was starring scott adkins and i said sure so i did it and and it was fun it was it was fun to work here i love working with the ty crews um there is uh such a can-do attitude with these guys it's it's the type it fits in well with the thai personality characteristics of most thais which is they're very kind they're um very friendly they're they're very conflict averse uh they're not you know you don't there's not a, there's no screaming and yelling except by me which which makes everybody crazy but um uh but there's very little screaming and yelling there's uh, you know on the on the bigger western shows here the hours are somewhat reasonable you work a 12 hour day i mean like some of the Thai dramas and stuff like that some of you do 17 18 20 hour days are not uncommon but <clears throat> on the western shows the bigger western shows they 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 do they keep them reasonable and and you know and then more high profile films started coming to Thailand i mean hangover two shot here yeah um uh, uh, there was a Ewan McGregor film about the about the tsunami what's yeah. the name of the- the the impossible season? yeah exactly so that was here um i mean i got to i i didn't work on hangover i went to the rap party for hangover too which was a lot of fun
0: <laughs> and uh, um
1: really really good group of guys and uh um then i just got to know a lot of the local crew guys a lot of the expats that live here there's a number of very talented expat you know but the the technical crew here in thailand is exceptional uh, some of the best focus pullers i've ever worked with great sound men great grip electric guys uh, hair and makeup people are great and then not long after ninja i got asked to do uh mechanic resurrection which i think at the time was the biggest budget film i'd done it was mm-hmm. it was about a 30 million dollar film and um and i was on that for 7 months a long job and um so that you know so at that point that was that was uh 2000 late 2014 early 2015 yeah uh, was on that and um <clears throat> That was when I was pretty much staying here full time because that was my longest stretcher. I was here for seven months straight and not going back to L.A. And then right after that, I was going to take some time off and relax. And a week into my relaxation, I got an offer to go to uh, Columbus, Ohio to do I Am Wrath, a John Travolta film, which I did that. And it was free You know, to go from lovely Bangkok to minus four degrees. Getting off the plane there it was like crazy <laughs> Columbus, Ohio in February. Uh, fun show. Uh, my friend Nick Vallelonga was the oh, yeah. uh, producer on that. And it developed a story with Paul Sloan and chaotic production, but cause we had like, like two weeks to prep the entire movie. But, uh, but JT, John, John Travolta was great to work with. And uh, um, there's a lot of other problems with that show, but it was, it was still fun. And uh, um, my friend Nick um, had a rough time on that show, but he bounced back quite well. Cause he uh, uh, wrote and produced uh, green book, which uh um, I always say my, my buddy Nick has two new roommates. They're both named Oscar, so um, <laughs> which was good for him. And uh, so uh, it's a story about his father, who I knew I knew Tony pretty well, because mm-hmm. Nick and I had been friends since 1992, I think. Wow. And I produced his first film in 94 called uh, In the Kingdom of the Blind, The Man with One Eyes King. It was my first line producing job. And I worked with Nick on that. And, and uh, so – uh, you know we just go we go way back' almost 30 years now and um, um, it was great to see him achieve that success, especially about the, with the story of his father uh, Tony yeah. who was such a great guy. Tony was a great guy, so many stories. oh my god his days when he was a the, eventually the, the, started as a bouncer and became the manager at Copacabana Club and he would tell all these great stories. and I had forgotten that he told me the story about Doc Shirley. <laughs> um, you know, the character and because he would go on and on about this. And I was like, I mean, it made no sense to me. I mean, he told me about, you know, some really funny stories about working at uh, uh Copacabana club and, uh, and he was an actor as well. So, I mean, I just watched the other night at my friend, my friend, Paul, my colleague, Paul, he has a movie club here in Thailand called the freeze green club and it's a private cinema club. So he shows one movie every night. And it's usually he, sometimes he'll take requests or he'll do themes like every Tuesday is going to be a, a French new wave film. And then every Sunday will be a Hitchcock film. And every, you know, something will, you know, what are, R.I.P cool. month you know, so somebody who's passed away, so the, their movies. Uh, but he did a request month all of January. And I convinced my buddy, John Englander, who lives here, who's a, a, a New York attorney who's lived in Thailand for about 15 years now. I said, you got to pick a movie. And he's like, oh, I said, let's pick a good, good New York film. Cause he's from New York. And I said, what about dog day afternoon? It's like, okay, dog day afternoon. So we watched that and Nick's dad is in that he plays. One of oh, the really? Guys. Yeah. Small, small part, but he's definitely featured in it. And then he went on to play Carmine in uh, old Carmine in uh, the Sopranos.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So
1: that's a uh, Tony lip that uh, he played in that. So, um, Tony was a great guy. He was a really good guy. And, and, uh, um, so it was nice. Nick basically honored his wish to not make the movie about him and Doc Shirley's life until after he passed away. So Nick had spent several years; uh, he'd sort of put his career on hold and he'd moved back to New Jersey to take care of his father as he was sick before he passed away. And so Nick was a you about that and took care of his dad. And then after his dad passed away, Nick came back and you know got full throttle back into you know his career as a filmmaker and has done quite well. So. Um, but anyway, so Thailand, I, you know, I can't, you know, I don't want to gush about it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it is, it's, it's a great place to live. Bangkok is an incredibly modern city. I remember when I first came to Thailand, I made the joke. It was like, so in Bangkok, there's like, they have like paved roads, like running water, like indoor plumbing and stuff. Right. And you know, now, I mean, you're, I'm sitting here in my condo and my gym is just up the street and I can get a little motorcycle taxi or shuttle up to my gym, which is a beautiful gym. It's got a lovely pool. It's, it's, it's attached to a mall and there's, you know, any kind of food you could ever want here. Um, it's, it's, uh, super easy living, uh, where my clothes are laundered is around the corner my buddy's <laughs> cinema club, which I go to on a regular basis, just, you know, is a eight minute walk from here and grocery stores and any kind of, you know, food you could buy at the groceries or anything you could want. Um, and it also, for me personally, what, what, what this ended up being is probably all stuff you want to cut out of this podcast. Cause I'm starting to get boring, but, but it, it, um, I didn't have a passport, I think, until I was 34, which is not an wow. uncommon. A lot of people, not incredibly uncommon for yeah. Americans. I have a lot of Americans that never travel. That's true. Uh, but I, growing up in Southern California, it was like, where are you going to go? You yeah. live in perfect weather. <laughs> you've got the beach. You've got the You can go skiing. You can go surfing. You're where
0: everybody and, wants yeah. to be.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so um, I definitely made up for it. I remember when I first started traveling and I started coming back and forth to Thailand, I actually had to get extra pages added to my passport. Oh because wow. I had so many stamps. And so what i had started to do up until COVID is I would typically do at least one trip a year to Europe. And I would just kind of do a tour and see friends, like the director of mechanic, Dennis Genzel, he lives in Berlin mm. and the DP there. So I'd go and I'd see them. Like last, my last big Europe trip was, was Berlin, Paris, Amsterdam, Barcelona, London, New York, back to Frankfurt, back to Bangkok. <clears throat> that was a month. And just seeing friends in all those cities um people that i gotten to know uh, i worked i uh, was very fortunate to work with a great spanish director named uh, gonzalo lopez gallego on a film called the hollow point um and in, in a movie shot in salt lake city but gonzalo and the dp jose and Jose's become one of my very close friends uh were just a pleasure to work with and i've been to spain to visit them a few times and uh jose and i've traveled around we've been to all sorts of cities. Together. He's come to Thailand. He's worked here, and he's come to visit here, and uh, we've had a great time. Uh, you know, and, and the last time when I did my last trip, he met me in Milan, and we saw Queen with Adam Lambert in Milan. Oh yeah, because we we. I, but the first time I saw Queen was in uh, Barcelona. So he, I, I flew into to Madrid, and he and I hung out in Madrid. And then we took the train up to Barcelona, where his cousin lives, and we hung out with him. and We saw the concert and went for paella and hung out for a few days. <laughs> So, um, but anyway, so I think coming to Thailand and realize, it just, it made me realize how small the world is, how yeah. accessible the world is, The the idea of getting, being, being in Bangkok, where there's traveling to Laos or Cambodia or Vietnam or Hong Kong or Singapore. And now Tokyo, I was in Tokyo last January, almost a year ago, exactly. I was there and uh, loved Tokyo. Oh my God, what a fascinating, like Japan What an incredible country. I I I think if COVID hadn't hit, I probably would have been back three times by now to Japan just to explore. Um, but anyway, so so you know this this travel moving here is, is is certainly was my you know lit the fire of travel in me. So you know to to feel completely comfortable to get on a plane to go to a city in Europe I've never been by myself, no problem. Especially that these make a big difference yeah. is a big difference uh, because you know the ability to get off an airplane and literally order an Uber at an airport you've never yeah. been to this. Take you directly to your hotel, whether or not you speak the language, it doesn't Makes matter. you feel so, a
0: little yeah. more secure. <laughs> oh,
1: totally. Yeah, yeah. Because I did one of the most terrifying things I ever had was my first job, first time going to Europe, I did a an infomercial and we shot in Paris. And I remember I had to stay back one day because I was most of the crew was flying back to LA and I was going to New York to meet with the writer. So I stayed an extra day. And I said, Oh, I'll go walking around. And I got lost in Paris. Oh. and didn't speak the language. <laughs> and I had some map and I couldn't read the map and I got terrified. I walked around for two hours and I finally found my hotel somehow. Wow. And I went back and I never left the room until I got in the taxi. That I in. <laughs> uh, where now it's just, I mean, I explored Paris like, like a wild man. I love it. Yeah. But one other thing that, you know, that's, you know, when you talk about, you know, my transition and all the other concurrent transitions that were happening, which is it's, it is this, it's the, it's the, the curse and the blessing of the digital world. And I know for a young filmmaker like yourself that, you know, you're living in a time where, um, where I think you're pretty lucky. You're lucky on one level and, and you're, you're disadvantaged on another level. Absolutely. Uh, the, com- the commerce side of the business is, uh, you know, may never fully recover. Um, it's great that, you know, you, you know, when I, when I was, when I was living with your dad, um, I bought a camera. I bought a 16-millimeter camera and uh, an, an old Airflex 16BL. And I remember, you know, I thought I was going to shoot some stuff, maybe shoot some music videos and stuff like that. But incredible, <clears throat> I mean, you had to buy film. You had to get the yeah. film developed. You had to have a sound man that could record on a Nagra, and then you had to sync those together and then do a telecine. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of dollars yeah. to shoot 10 minutes worth of film where now people do movies on this, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, So it's, it's pretty remarkable what you can do. The conversely is you don't control your content because of the internet. So that's the blessing and the curse. So I think the blessing is that it it provides, it's an equalizer. It levels the playing field. So you don't have to be rich in order to make a film to experiment, to try things, to learn. You can learn by doing, you can shoot a film on an iPhone and edit it on your laptop. Um, um, So it's incredibly cheap. So that, I think that's an equalizer that gives the opportunity for the, for the the kid who lives in Lithuania or the kid who lives in, you know, Ohio to go and make a, make a film that might be seen by somebody. Uh, The downside is it's hard to monetize. There's a lot of films that are made that don't, make money back because
0: and not only that it's there is there is an element you know i i pay attention to a lot of this stuff just just from my own personal discipline and the the reality is when you are working with digital there's a lot more room for there to not be discipline you know there's <clears throat> the discipline of, of having physical medium is you have limited physical medium and you have to account for that fact i started training myself because i, I also do still photography and yeah. so I'm now teaching myself to do actual film photography. So I'm shooting actual 35 millimeter film yeah. because now when I go and shoot on my Sony a seven, then I'm going to take that same, like, I'm not just going to go and snap 50 pictures in one go. I'm yeah. going to really think about every single shot I take every single, you know, cause it really, it, that discipline translates and absolutely you can have well, discipline a... was required
1: it was absolutely necessary i mean yeah. i mean when i've gotten in the business most of the dps i worked with were all men that were in their 40s or 50s and stuff yeah. like that because you needed that year those years of experience a lot of them <clears throat> especially some of the eastern european guys that i worked with and they would talk well you know i i worked in a lab i swept floors at a lab yeah. when i was a kid then i got a job at a camera house being a technician, like cleaning the gear and then i got on a crew and i was like the clapper loader for five years and then i was a second ac for five years then i became a focus puller then i became an operator then i became a dp when they're in their 40s where because you that's what you needed to 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 gather all this knowledge experience you needed that the funny thing is my my colleague paul who is shooting this little horror film right now where i was helping him last week he's a dp as well um and it's funny because he's a very creative guy, but he's also super technical. Wow. Um, so he's got a, a black magic camera, the latest black magic camera. And he bought some new lenses and had them all fitted and recolimated for his camera. And it, it produces some great images, <clears throat> but he's like me. He's a film guy. He, I mean, he's, he shot and cut his first several films on, on a, you know, on a, you know, standup movie, yeah. you know, shooting on 16. And, um, and so, so he's, you know, the, 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 the physical side of it as well. His concern was, um, the look that he was after there was too much forgiveness in the dynamic range of most hd now so yeah. what he did is paul developed his own lut for his camera which basically is he, his, he took his dynamic range from a 14 to 1 ratio down to like a seven to one ratio ah. so so basically so it forces him to in the and the look of it is worth it i mean i'll mm-hmm. send you some screenshots from this but um What he does with his little tiny camera is just amazing. But he, you know, forces him and his crew to basically like we got, we got to light this properly. I don't. You can't just pan over and see the window because well, we can always in post production pull that and see the detail out there. And you can't. So he's he's purposely limited his dynamic range. He's getting it right in camera. In camera with his Lud that that, that regulates that. So but and this this is not an exercise either. I think that the look is better. Mm-hmm. I think he's got a much better looking film because he's not. I mean, I'm looking at. He's sending me screen grabs, you know, right out of his camera, yeah. not 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 going through his DaVinci at home and his home, you know, home right. studio setup. Where he's got all these computers and stuff to do this stuff. He goes, this is right out of the camera, and it looks damn good. It looks amazing, mm-hmm. and I think there's not many people that have that discipline anymore. I and mean, the older guys yeah. do but do the younger guys. I mean, you know, there's a huge fascination, obviously in Thailand. I mean, there's two different Leica stores in Bangkok. I mean, so the people are in the camera, they're into that. I mean, they love it. And I mean, I live across the street from a Starbucks and it's like the biggest Instagram spot in all of (laughs) Thailand. (laughs) i see thousands of pictures from this because they've got this British phone booth in front of this Gothic Gothic looking building part of the Davis hotel. And, um, it's, uh, um, you see people, I mean, there's literally, if we walked out there right now then you'd see a dozen different people out there taking pictures and you see, I, I go, I was there like at midnight, not long ago. And there were some guys doing like some time-lapse stuff at night. Ah, yeah. So they're, they're doing some incredibly creative stuff. And I think, I think, so there's a lot of people with the discipline, but you know, um, I, I think there's going to be an appreciation for that. Kind of like the days of vinyl in the music world. Absolutely. Um, Um, I was thinking about it this morning just in terms of controlling content. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, um, the music business was threatening to sue people who bought a vinyl record and then they recorded a cassette of that so you could play it in your car. That was going to be against the law. So you literally, you went and bought your, you know, your KISS record, and you wanted to put a cassette so you could play in your car. You had to go buy the actual cassette. So the band made money from it. Where nowadays there's not. There's not I mean, imagine that degree of control over your material, just like a movie. Yeah. I mean, back in the days yeah. before, you know, I mean, VHS, you know, and DVDs was a it was a huge boon to the industry. But that was really a stepping stone to the entire industry almost falling off a cliff. Yeah. You know, in terms of in terms of the ability to monetize and control content, because it's just all out there for everybody now. And I don't I don't know if it's ever coming back. Yeah. Um, um, so we'll see. And now COVID. I mean, let's see what happens in the end of COVID. Are we? Are we ever going back? Or yeah. is is what what is the world post COVID world of entertainment and content creation? Which I hate that the concept. Of, you know, content creation.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I
1: would say let's go. Let's go get some mega. Let's go. We're going to go on a megapixel hunt. I mean, yeah. We're going to, you know, but um, but it it, it is a, a fascinating time. But um, I I still think there is a uh. I think I see, I think there's a curiosity, I think with a lot of young people nowadays, which I love, I love being in Thailand and working around some of these enthusiastic kids that are just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, either they're tasting music or they're tasting films and, and things like that at my buddies at, at freeze green club where I go all the time, you know, to find some young Thai kids that want to come and watch, you know, Citizen Kane and they yeah. want to watch the great old movies. Um, and I think that's important. I see that. Sadly, it's a fairly small group, but um, it is an interesting time to uh, to. Uh, hopefully, people get continued that, that curiosity will 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 dominate, and people will want are interested in shooting, understanding if if they're not shooting film, but at least they're understanding the properties of it. Yeah. The dynamics of of, of exposure of, of of celluloid, you know, you know, reacting to photons, yeah. you know, and and uh, you know th- th- that discipline also I think translates to the other discipline, which is composition. That people Absolutely. don't, you know, the lost art of composition, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a lot of filming mm-hmm. nowadays is like when I worked with a with a great DP, I love it because I see how they set that frame you know, watching Robert Ellsworth's work or watching, you know, who I got to work with very, I mean, I was doing second unit. He was on main unit on gold, but obviously being around him was interesting. But my, my friend, Jose, my friend, Guillaume, um, uh, Daniel, some of the great DPs I work with my, my colleague, Paul here, who's, you know, who we just spent, I just spent a day working with him up in Kauyai. And we're doing interesting shots, you know, for no money, $70,000 movie. Yeah. You know, feature film and, and, but just, just, composition, lighting, simple stuff without you, know, the tiny crew yeah. and, you know, and just for me, it's just like fun to get in and place the actors and fill that frame. What do you look at? Drop it down a little bit and get this. That's that, that's the stuff that kind of gets my blood flowing in a good way. And I love that stuff. sauce. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, and then when you get the performance, it's, it's, you know, that's really everything. I mean, I think that, you know, Ron Howard always said is story, acting and editing. You want to know filmmaking, story, acting, and editing. That's what it is, and it, yeah. and it, you know, uh, you know, getting a script right. Whether it's whether it's the, t- the months I've spent developing projects and reading drafts, and it's like, oh, it's getting there, it's getting there, it's getting better. Or seeing reading a book and then seeing how the the adaptation worked out and understanding that. So it's a fascinating process. I'm still thoroughly excited by it.
0: Yeah, we're constantly learning. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, because I I kind of keeps us young.
1: I mean, you know, as as, you know, as time goes on, you you got to find things that keep you enthused. So,
0: well, that was this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and uh, I can't wait to get this get this out to our uh, listeners. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you for listening. Uh, This has been a great episode and make sure to follow us on social media. We'll have that uh, in the description and uh, stay tuned next week for our next episode. Thank you.